Howdy! <laughs> I am so excited to be together. The name of this sermon, we are big on the DIY uh, bulletins where we have you write in notes and things, and the way we're going to start it is, here's the name of the sermon, here's mud in your eye. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard that expression? This is where they get that, the text we're going to read today. It is so nice to be back in the book of John. For me, honestly, it's like catching up with an old friend and studying this and going through this and looking at the different details of this apostle, this disciple whom Jesus loved, who wrote about what Jesus accomplished and did. We're going through John, and I want you to understand why we're going through John. We're going through the book of John. We started in February of 2018. Some of you didn't have children that you have now then. And we're going through John, and here's why, so we can be on the same page of who God really is based on what he says about himself. And I think the book of John does a phenomenal job of pointing out who Jesus is, but I want you to hear this from me. We're not here to just entertain you. We're not here to get you to put in time so you can check a box of your religiosity. We're here to equip you to be doers of the word. So I'd encourage you to take notes. I'd encourage you to pay attention. I'd encourage you to think about the things that you hear today and how you're going to share them with others throughout the week. Because I can promise you this, if you do that for the right reasons, if you do that with motives of making much of the Lord, God will grow you. Let me start with a passage that isn't in the back of your bulletin, even though there's 7,000 verses in the back of your bulletin. It's not going to be up here. I'm just going to read it to you. I want you to hear my words. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord, the, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Just real quick all the time. That's what he means. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Unless you rent, you might not want, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the point is, as God spoke in Deuteronomy, the word changes us. Not when we read it, but when we do something with it, when we obey it. And so we just finished this vision series of the gospel, spiritual growth, and family. But I want to make clear we're still in the vision series because the Word of God is where we get our vision from. What He has said, what He has done as we put it into practice. So we're still in a vision series, and based on how slow we're going in John, we'll probably be in a vision series the rest of my life. But I want to start with this illustration. It's not a very good one, but I just want to start with it. What is this? It's a rope. Now, if you're familiar with ropes, you know that if you don't really uh, put any tension in them, they're kind of worthless. They just kind of dangle there. There's not really much that happens. But then, if you are all about making it as tight as possible, I'm not strong enough. Big Joe? I'm just kidding. Um, we, could, we could pull it apart. But there's something about just pulling it enough that it's in this tension. I want you to think about this rope, and I want you to think about what we're going to read today, and I want you to think about what it looks like to study God's Word, and I also want you to think about 
the fact that Christianity, it's about being in the tension. It's not about being incredibly liberal, and it's not about being incredibly legalistic. There is this tension in between. We can do a lot of external activity, and we can do that activity in vain. And so when we choose to begin this series in John, known as In Jesus' Name, Amen, it was to make known that Jesus is the Christ, and that salvation and spiritual growth are found in His name. Our status and relationship is based on what He has done and what He has done alone, not what we can do for Him. John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, writes this gospel account of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ. And it alludes to this when we read towards the end of the gospel of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Hallelujah. So not only does John make known that Jesus performed many other miracles that are not included in this gospel account during these three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, but also that what was recorded by John through the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit was so that you could know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God incarnate, that God with skin is whom we turn to in order to have eternal life and to have a right relationship with the God of the universe. So with that understanding, we're going to jump into John chapter 9, verse 1, after doing a vision series in the book of Jonah during the summer. So here we go, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, that's Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man from birth. Okay, so he went along. It'd be really easy to spend the entire sermon just on that. (laughs) But commentators differ on when this happened, because it doesn't say immediately after, and John didn't usually use that language, which some of the other gospel writers used. But people wonder if this is immediately after the conclusion of chapter 8, where Jesus had just said to a group of Jewish people, I am, which probably doesn't seem that offensive to us in our culture, because we read ahead, we know who Jesus is. We know what Jesus has accomplished. But when he said, I am, to these Jewish people, to this crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, they were looking at him as a blasphemer. And then the text says in chapter 8 at the end, he says that he hid himself and left the temple courts. So the logical conclusion was that since this man who is about to, uh, who needs to be healed, he was a beggar, that it would make sense for this man to be near the temple courts where there would be a lot of foot traffic of what we would consider moral and religious people who would almost feel like they had to give this beggar money. If that were true, the emphasis would probably be that even though Jesus was in danger, even though he hid himself and left this crowd who wanted to kill him, It didn't bother Jesus at all, which could be true. But even if this is another day, which it doesn't state, it doesn't really matter because he's in the same vicinity. And he knows that there are people that are looking to uh, conspire against him to kill him. So as he went along, he saw a blind man, not just any blind man, a blind man since birth. 
This isn't someone who had an accident and became blind. This wasn't someone's eyesight that deteriorated over many years and lost his sight. This is someone that since birth could not see. Verse 2, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, Rabbi, that means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's interesting about this situation, which a lot of us don't notice at first, is if you've been reading chronologically through the book of John, and we were in John 6, like, I think Clinton was president back when we were in that, but the disciples have not been mentioned in the book of John since chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6. In fact, Jesus says some hard things, and there's this crowd, and there are Jesus' disciples, and he says these hard things, and a group of these people, a lot of these people, I would guess most of these people, left Jesus because of the hard things he was saying. And then Jesus asked the 12, do you want to leave also? Here's what it says in John 6, 68 and 69. Simon Peter, of course it was Simon Peter, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, I wish Peter was better at actually acting as if he believed that. And then we have this circumstance where Jesus is with his disciples again. We've left chapter 6. He's gone to the Feast of Tabernacles after having a conversation with his brothers. And it almost feels like Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles and like puts his disciples on a leash and then goes in and then comes back. Because all of a sudden we see the disciples again and they're asking these questions about this man who had been blind since birth. But here is what I know. Even though the scriptures are silent about the disciples while he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, it doesn't mean that they weren't with him. Especially considering that John is the writer of this gospel and the specific conversations that Jesus had with his brothers and then had at the Feast of Tabernacles, it doesn't sound like this was passed on and Jesus just told them what happened. I think what happened was John and probably some of the other disciples were with him. This was from an eyewitness account, at least is how it seems written. So let's look at what the disciples ask. Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? This question is a really good question because it exposes our culture. It exposes their culture. There had really been this consistent line of thought, even to this day, that thinks that if someone is dealing with something tragic, if someone is dealing with something difficult, it's because of their sin that that tragedy was brought on. I think we, like they, wrongly believe that what happens to us is directly because of our sin, that there is this cause and effect that takes place. And so when we become sick or have an ailment, it's directly caused by something we did or something we didn't do, or because our parents or family did something so that we receive some type of sickness or deformity essentially as a curse from God. Now, I understand why some of us could come to that conclusion even reading Scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, one of the first commandments that God gives the Israelites is this. In chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God 
punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Whoa. And it would be easy to come to this conclusion that what you do, parents, affects your children. If you sin, maybe your kids are going to have to go through some really difficult things. But listen, there is no formula in Scripture for tragedy. There is no, I do A and then B happens to me. We cannot assume that if I do this, then God is going to smite me. Other than one formula. Sin creates death. That's a formula you can bet on. Sin creates death, maybe not instantly, maybe not for a while, but death is the ultimate victor without Jesus Christ being the satisfaction for your sin. Let me say it a different way. Death wins if Jesus Christ is not your Savior. So then, what is meant by punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him? It means that if your family is obstinate to the gospel, if you are a family without any want for Jesus, that will directly influence multiple generations in your family because people don't get to hear about the goodness of Christ. So the benefit to your Christian family members is that you or your children or your grandchildren have the opportunity to hear the gospel because someone in the family line is a Christian and hopefully they're not sitting on their hands but they're making much of Jesus with their lives. No matter how perfect their witness is or how perfect their witness isn't, the power is not in how good we are, church, or how well we rep Christ, because that would make it up to us. The power is in the Word. The power is in the truth of the message and the Spirit removing the veil so that people can see the gospel for what it is, which is a beautiful salvation. Did you know that that's what the gospel is? It is a beautiful salvation for those who turn. So Jesus responds in verse 3 of John 9. He says, after being asked this question, who sinned? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. <laughs> I love that Jesus just shuts down their poor theology. He doesn't go, let me, let me take you to Isaiah and show you a few things. He doesn't go, well, orthodoxy would say over thousands of years. He doesn't do any of that. He just does a direct redirection of the disciples' poor theology and a correct application of why this man was born blind. But let's look at what Jesus said. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Okay, <laughs> I don't think I need to make this point, but I've been wrong before, so I'm going to make this point. Of course this man and his parents had sinned. In some capacity, they had sinned. In fact, Romans 3.23 say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, of course, they've sinned, but it is not their sin that caused this man's blindness. It was not that he deserved it any more than you or I deserve it. Because the wages of sin are not blindness. They're not deformity. They're not hard luck. The wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, is what? It's death. Because each of us is a sinner. Okay? No one's thrown a hymnal at me yet. 
And each of us has been dominated by our sin nature at one point in our lives. So you and I need someone to intervene, to rescue, to heal, to restore us. And Paul doesn't just say that the wages of sin are death, but what does he say? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such a beautiful verse we should stamp on our foreheads. God gives us the solution to our sin and to our death problem. He doesn't force the gift or tell you that you have to earn it. He gifts it. To those who do repent, he gifts eternal life in Jesus Christ. So they and we do sin. This man, this blind man, his parents. But Jesus was explaining that it was not their sin that produced this handicap. We often think that when others get sick or injured around us, it's really easy to assume that they deserve it, but when we get sick or injured, how we start to think, well, life just isn't fair. And for most, the unanswerable question, which I think is pretty easy, is why does God let bad things happen to good people? Has anyone ever struggled with this question? Be real. Come on. Come on. If you can't raise your hands in church, where can you raise your hands? Come on. And this question is flawed, as we've already explained many times, because the Bible says that no one is innocent, no one is good. Let me show you. Ecclesiastes, haven't used Ecclesiastes yet in two years that I've been here. Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Psalm 53, 2 and 3, God looks down from heaven and on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Wow. Romans 3, 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. (laughs) So that's some bad news. But I got some good news for you. One of our elders, Daniel, who probably just said woohoo, one of the things that he once said in a sermon that he preached here, which I loved, was this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it only happened once, and he volunteered. He stole that from R.C. Sproul, but that's a good quote. So listen, the Bible outs all of us. We are without excuse. Each of us have committed cosmic treason against a holy God if we do everything wrong, or if we just do a few things wrong, yet attempt to justify ourselves by comparison. We're in the same boat. We are all level at the foot of the cross. See, you and I don't need to try harder not to sin. We need to have a new nature be gifted to us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. So why does this man have blindness since birth? John Calvin tells us what not to do. We ought not seek the cause of this blindness in sin. That's not why he's blind. Why is he blind? Verse 3, second part. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some of you are going through some trials, y'all. I know it. I've been tired because of it. I've talked with you. I've prayed with you. I've tried to encourage you. Some of you aren't even telling me of all the junk because last week when I confessed how rough I was, what I was going through, some of you were like, well, I don't want to tell him because it's just another thing. Hey, I'm not glass, guys. I'm your pastor. So you can tell me what's going on. 
I may just wait a week after my vacation to respond. <laughs> so what's crazy about this second part of the verse, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It sounds like that what this man is going through had a purpose. Imagine that. But it can't just be that God would heal him, even though that is a work of God. But look at what Jesus says. He says, the works of God, plural, not singular, may be displayed in him. So it wasn't just the blindness, but the circumstance of life that was an opportunity for this man to be drawn by God in this time. It would be so easy for us because we're just going to study the first 12 verses, but spoiler alert, we're going to study the entire chapter, and guess what? This guy has his sins forgiven. But we're just studying the first 12 verses this week. It's really easy to go, wow, God performed a miracle. He healed that person. Your healing matters not if your sins are not forgiven. Woo, that's good. So it wasn't just the blindness, but the circumstance that God used to draw this man to himself. So it seems as if the handicap that this man has endured has been an opportunity for God to do work through him and that those works could be displayed. A lot of us have a pretty theologically dishonest view of God. Did you know that? We think he's holy, but we don't think he's the hero. We think he's powerful, but we don't think he's wrathful. We think he's big enough to hold the universe together, but he's too small to be in complete control, especially in our salvation. We think that bad things happen when they happen. They're punitive restitution for our evil, but that's ridiculous. Because what happens when we do something good? Does God then owe us for what we did right? Of course not. Because not only do we never really do anything good without the Spirit of God being the one who leads us, but God is about making known who He is for the glory of His name. That's why behind this man's blindness there was a God who was working things through so that God could be put on display, that God would be glorified, that God would be known, that the glory of God would be visible, that God's godness would be seen. Let me show you where this is in the Bible. Um, spoiler alert, it's everywhere. So let's start in a very quoted at funeral passage, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That sounds great. It also sounds like it's, he's about me, doesn't it? He leads me in beside quiet waters. Yes! He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. All of that sounds great. All of that sounds like it's for you, but let's see why he did it. For his name's sake. That's our God. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my, what? Glory. Whom I formed and made. Isaiah 49, 3, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, my people, in whom I will display my splendor. Psalm 106, 7, 8, when our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. 
1 Samuel 12, 21 through 22, do not turn away after useless idols. They can do no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Ezekiel 20, verse 9, but for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. Ezekiel 36, 22, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. And now we have this opportunity as his people to glorify him, to make his glory known for his name's sake. We know this verse. It's on coffee cups, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. Even Jesus, the Son, brings glory to his Father and the Father to his Son, Jesus says in John 17, right after he says eternal life is this, that they may know you, the one true God, and the Son whom you have sent. Then he says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So all of this means we, as his people, as Jesus' people, as Holy Spirit-redeemed people, as God's children, can glorify and make known God's magnificence through everything we do. Here's a really hard verse to apply, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Huh. So what does all this mean? It means that God's glory is a theme in the Bible that God's about, and we ought to be about what he's about. In fact, at the end of the Bible, at Revelation 21 and 22, hear these words written by the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. (sighs) You get sunburns because of the sun. You see what you see because of the light of the moon or the sun, and in eternity, we don't need either because the glory of God lights everything up. Wow. See, glory is about renown. Glory is about making known the substantial power and majesty of God, and we're all beings who are created to glorify God. John Piper says it this way, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of God's infinite worth. Everything we do and are about is for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. And some of you hear that and think, well, what about me? What about you? Christianity is complicated. It doesn't always fit into the black and white. The way we want to see religion 
Christianity is about a relationship, and relationships are not legalistic. They are sticky sometimes, but remember, they exist in the tension. And as Christians, we live in this tension. We are not saved by what we do, but what was done for us when understood and received changes what we do. And so that makes us a sinner in our old nature. We call it the old man. It's a theological term. Who unfortunately, that even though we've come to Christ, even though we've repented of our sin, and I hope you have, I hope you're not faking it, but even though we have repented and we have changed direction, unfortunately in this life, until we are glorified with God in our death and then resurrection through what he's accomplished, we're gonna drag that old man around. And we're going to do things that are not in line with the Spirit of God who is in us. We will sometimes if the Spirit's in us, but not all the time. So we live in this tension of both being a sinner and a saint because of how God sees us. And He does know us. He does love us. Even though we sin against Him and we don't do anything that we ought to do, we have a God who sees us and gave us this tension of both being a sinner and a saint, not by what we do, but by what God has done. So as Christians, we are sinners seen as saints. Verse 4. That was my introduction. Verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Okay, so this culture didn't have Uber drivers that picked you up late at night. (laughs) Work ended when the sun went down, okay? But in this case, he uses this natural and ordinary analogy of day and night to explain that the work of the sun will come to an end one day. There is a finished work that we are redeemed by. Jesus finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead, and he was alluding to this work that would be completed before night comes. Hear me, there is an urgency in the kingdom of God. And Jesus had to do work here on earth, but there was an appointed time when this work would be accomplished. Jesus uses this analogy of day day and night. Night tends to mean death or darkness or sin in the Bible, which day signifies life and light and forgiveness and doing what is right and true in many passages in the Word of God. And then he says in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I've heard commentators differ on this and fight over this, but I think what he meant was the same thing he meant when he said in John 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in both instances, he's making known that Jesus Christ is the contrast to the darkness of this world. He is the one that comes into the world, which is dark, and sheds light so people can see good. And who's good? God. And see salvation and believe in the one whom was sent. But in chapter 9, Jesus says in verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Does that mean that when he went back to the right hand of the Father in heaven, that the light of the world no longer shines on earth? Yes and no. Jesus is not with us in physical form. He's at the right hand of the Father in honor, 
but his spirit, the Holy Spirit, resides in this world to comfort those who are indeed in Christ. In fact, Paul says this in Romans 8, 9, and 10. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. (laughs) Wow. But if Christ is in you, then even your body is subject to death because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Not because of what you've done, because of what Christ has done for you. So you and I, we receive the Holy Spirit, but he is also known as the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord. So the light now shines through those who are included in Christ, those who have repented, who have had a heart change and are following Jesus. Right before I read that verse, Matthew 5, 16, in 14 and 15, here's what Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Say, what? A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty huge responsibility to be the light of the world, don't you think? To take the baton from Christ with his spirit inside of us to continue the work of making disciples and pointing them to Jesus? And so not only should we have a sense of urgency, but as God's children, we ought to have a sense of responsibility as well. There is a world that we live in that is so dark. It is so depraved. And we as redeemed, adopted children of God get to proclaim the light of the world. Verse six, after saying this, He spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, gross, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. I think Jesus was being punny. So the man went and washed and came home seen. After saying that he is the light of the world, he then does something that a few people understand. He spits on some dirt, produces mud, and puts it on the blind man's eyes. Now listen, you can produce some mud, but you probably can't make a blind person see. And this seems to be absurd. And I have heard sermons upon sermons where they attempt to find some hidden meaning about the mud. And listen, before you email me Genesis 2, well, we were taken from dust. Shut up. I don't want that email. Just, I'm on, no. I really don't know why. Most commentators that are honest don't really know why he did this. Here's what I'll guess at. I think he was creating an absurd opportunity for this man to exercise faith. Absurd. And I believe he did this with the expectation that this man would go wash his eyes off in the fountain, which gave Jesus, not that he needed it, but time to leave the scene. Real quick, again, spoiler alert, Jesus forgives this man when he runs into him again. And this man's willingness to trust what Jesus had told him to do, no matter how ridiculous for many, would assume that he just had faith. But let me argue real quick. I think this man was desperate. He had heard about what it's like to see. Someone had told him about the color blue, and he had no idea what this guy was talking about. And he comes, and this man says, I will spit in this dirt. I will put it on your eyes and go to this fountain. 
and he does. And I know that for almost all of us, it's when we're desperate. It's when we're truly in need that we let our guard down and we are willing to trust God more than ourselves, which is faith. But with this comes danger. In fact, many think that Christianity is for those who cannot think for themselves. And to be honest, I've met and known many people who really didn't want Jesus. They wanted the benefits of Jesus that they were told by some preacher in a nice suit that it came with. They didn't have to be in a nice suit. They're hipsters now. But I have also heard that Jesus is a crutch. I've said this here before, that people think Jesus is a crutch. Hear me, Jesus is absolutely a crutch. He's a crutch for those who know that their legs are broken. So do you realize that you're broken? Or do you think you're good because of some external facade, because you've convinced other people that you're good? Verse 8, his neighbors don't have time. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? You've got to assume this is pretty jarring, right? Like, this guy's been here a while, he's been begging for things, he's been blind, and now all of a sudden these people see him, and he's not blind, he's got sight, and they're like, wait a second, that guy, is that the guy? It's a question that I think's natural of those who had actually seen this man before, but look what happens, verse 9, some claim that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him, <laughs> but he himself insisted, no, it's me, I'm the man. Some believed he was. Other attempted to explain away the possible miracle by saying, no, that's not him. And yet, you have the testimony of the very man who had been blind who now can see. Verse 10. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. I love this testimony. I love this literal response of the former blind man. He says, the one they call Jesus. That was his name. And yet there is a level of credibility that comes with the fact that this blind man said this. Similar to, you ready, Madonna or Rihanna. I didn't mean for those to rhyme. The thing about that is, if you've watched TV, or you used to watch MTV, or you watch the news, and you're familiar with celebrities, I don't have to give you their last names. Share for some of you, okay? You're welcome. There was, a very, there was this thing of credibility. Why? Because Jesus was a very common name at this time. The one that they called Jesus. Oh, that one. They weren't thinking of Jesus from wherever, they knew who he was talking about because why? His reputation had preceded him. There was this miracle that preceded the ruckus that Jesus had caused at the Festival of Tabernacles, and it's such a simple explanation of what had happened. The one who is called Jesus made mud. He put it on my eyes. He sent me to a fountain called Scent, and I went, also rhyming, washed off my eyes, and now I can see. Listen. I believe with all my heart that God still heals today. Woo-hoo-hoo, does he? 
But I rarely see people healing biblically. We put all this fanfare and effort in trying to heal someone. We ask God if it is his will, or we do the opposite. We name it and claim it, and yet God in the flesh used some pretty ridiculous means to heal people. He spits on dirt and rubs mud in the blind man's eye. He tells a man with a withered hand, stretch it out, and it's healed. Richard Simmons, bro. He tells a man who can't move, pick up your mat and walk. He met a deaf man who could barely speak, and Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears, and he spits on his own hand, and he places his hand on the man's tongue, and now the man was healed from his deafness and his speaking impediment. But here is what I'm not here to tell you. Do not put your fingers in people's ears. Don't spit on mud and make, or don't spit on dirt and make mud and put it on a blind man's eyes. That is not your application. Your application from this passage is about the signs that Jesus did. Back to the verse that we started with in John 20, verse 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Your application is to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. And that through the heart, mind, life change that leads us to repentance, a new nature is given to us, a new heart is given to us, a new life is given to us. Why? So we can do the unfinished work of Christ that we can make disciples of all nations and generations until he comes back one day on a horse riding through the clouds and redeeming the world that is his. John 14, 12 says this, very truly I tell you, he's speaking to his disciples, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Say what? Jesus died and rose again. We're going to do better than that? Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It's in John chapter 14, and he's making clear, as possible as he can, that the Father and he are one. And because of that, he will go back to the Father at the place of honor at his right hand. But his disciples, those who have opted in to follow Jesus, they will continue the work that Jesus has left us with to make disciples of all nations being witnesses and testifying to what God has done so the works of God may be displayed through us so that we can glorify God. John chapter 9, verse 12. Where is this man? They asked him. The blind man says, I don't know. More on that next week. <laughs>